Yes. Awesome to have you back once again. Um, the choirs are back for the new school year. Fantastic. An invitation to everyone here, not only the students, but to church members. This week, our week of worship on campus, each day at about 11.30, and our topic, No Guts, No Glory. No Guts, No Glory, and uh, your pastor will be delivering the messages that week, including many students who will be participating in a variety of ways. But if you'd like to do something over your lunch hour and just uh, drive a few blocks into this very space, uh, the student body invites you, all of you, to participate in this week that will culminate next week. And I have to say that in addition to dealing with some pretty gritty issues about living with guts, uh, at the end of last school year, the student body submitted some dares to myself, to Patty McCoy, and to Tommy Poole, and we selected the five of those dares that we were willing to participate in. And so part of this week, there are short videos that are chronicling some pretty horrible things. I will just say that. Um, I ate something I never should have eaten. I participated in an activity that will permanently damage my relationship with half of you. And... Um, I also did something else that I will hate to admit that I enjoyed, and I really shouldn't have enjoyed it at all. So don't miss uh, this invitation. It will be great to have all of you come and participate. So as Pastor Jen mentioned, uh, in just a few moments, on to the seventh longest table. This is the seventh year, that's right, seven times we have enjoyed together a meal at our quarter-mile table here on College Avenue. And so in honor of our seventh, uh, I want to pivot to our sermon now with a seven-point quiz for you. And particularly for those children in the congregation, listen up, for I think you will know the answers to some of these. So uh, if you think you know the answer, feel free just to, to verbalize it. Um, and here we go. Question number one, the theme is bears. What do you call a bear that lives above the Arctic Circle? A polar bear. Very, very good. Nice. Yeah. Question number two. What do you call a bear known to regularly consume salmon in Alaska? A grizzly bear. Well played. Question number three, what do you call a bear known to be regularly consumed by the Green Bay Packers? Well, yes, that would be a Chicago bear. That's three. <laughs> Question four, what do you call a bear that has no teeth? Ah, well done, a gummy bear. Question five, what do you call a bear who often says, I'm smarter than the average bear? That's right, Yogi Bear. Question number six, what do you call a bear you cuddle with at night? A teddy bear. And finally, on to our seventh bear. Question number seven, what do you call the bear 
that fights forest fires. Smokey the bear. So here we have it. The message from the seventh bear today, a word of personal responsibility, only you. Only you can prevent forest fires, but before that, only you. Personal responsibility. But we live in an era, don't we? This era of sin where we don't often like to take personal responsibility. A few years ago, I was teaching here an 8 a.m. class. When about halfway through, a student came up to me who had missed several class periods, was not performing particularly well, and said, Professor Brian, I've got a problem. And I said, yes, it seems that you do. Tell me more. He said, well, the problem is I can't come to class at 8 o'clock. And I asked him, is there a conflict of some kind? He said, no, there's no conflict. I just can't come at 8. I said, well, what's that? He says, I just can't get out of bed. I asked him, you know, was he depressed? Was he stressed? He said, no, no, no. I, I just don't do 8 o'clock. You see, Walla Walla University has created a schedule that doesn't accommodate my needs. So you see, the circumstances have made it impossible for me to do well. Well, we hear these sort of excuses of it's not my responsibility from children, don't we? Jimmy made me do it. And then we mature to the devil made me do it. And we say things to one another like, I wish my family were different, but it's beyond my control. I wish the church would change. It's beyond my control. Some people are going to have to die. Oh, I wish the country were different, but pff, what am I going to do about Washington, D.C.? I wish the world were a different, a better place, but what am I going to do about it? This is the era that we live in. Started so long ago, you remember Eve. The, the devil, the snake made me do it. Adam, e Eve made me do it. Cain, I'm not responsible for my brother. Aaron says, it's the people. I, don't, I didn't want to make this golden calf. Moses says, I didn't want to strike the rock. The people made me do it. And the people look at God and say, we don't want to be complaining, God, but you're the one that drug us out of Egypt. And even Pilate Oh, do you remember? He washes his hands and sends Jesus to his death. It's not my responsibility. It's the people. It's what they want. It's the world I live in. We live in an era, and again, I refer to the era of sin, where it is our disposition, it is our natural reaction for pretty much everything in life. And we say, not my responsibility not me. Into this world, we discover the extraordinary Abigail. Abigail. Here we are in the fifth part of our series, looking at characters and their character. The Old Testament figure, Abigail. A bit of a context, we, we learn that Samuel, the great prophet and judge, has died. Saul, a very weak king, 
is supposedly in control. David, both impulsive and violent, a combination that is not good, is rummaging about the countryside. And then Abigail is married to Nabal, who is a fool. The text tells us that he's surly and he's mean, he's wealthy, but above all, he is just foolish. And then there's Abigail. We discover that David is going about the land. He moves into the territory near where Nabal and his family live. And he sends word asking that Nabal would offer provisions for his men. Nabal replies, no, I'm not going to give you anything. Well, this enrages David. He takes two-thirds, that is 400 of his men, and he says to them, we're going in to Nabal's household and we're wiping everybody out. Well, word leaks back to some of the servants in the household of Nabal. They rush to Abigail. And they say to her, do something, save our lives. And it's worth hearing word for word the actions of Abigail. 1 Samuel 25, beginning in verse number 18, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, and nearly a bushel of roasted grain. 100 clusters of raisins and 200 fig cakes, she packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, Go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, a lot of good, good did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never saw the young man you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. And then she continues her speech, even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you. Your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stone shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please Remember me, your servant. And as the story goes, 
Abigail saves the day. David stands down and says, yes, I don't want innocent bloodshed on my hands. People's lives are saved. She rescues the situation. Days later, after a drunken stupor, Nabal dies. And our Abby, quick and smart, becomes the wife of David. Think about it. Samuel is dead. The rock who maintained political stability in Israel. Saul, a pathetic, weak king, is supposedly in charge. David, who is volatile and violent, running across the land. And her husband, Nabal, is a fool. Surely we could give her a pass if she just said, not my problem, particularly because I am a woman, and a woman in that day, nothing but a material possession for a man. Who would have blamed her? Not my issue, not my responsibility. I want no part of it. But here the magnificent Abigail saves the day. She's a hero, taking responsibility for a situation. She is not overwhelmed by her circumstances. For a little over a decade and a half, Spencer Johnson's book, Who Moved My Cheese, has been an influential tale about the difference between mastering circumstances and being afraid of them. There's four little characters in the story. They're in a maze, two mice named Sniff and Scurry, and two small human beings, Hem, and ha. And as you might expect, uh, the two mice are able to go out and locate cheese whenever they need to. They're on the move, but uh, the two little people, they're not so interested in that. And one day when they finally discover a big lump of cheese, they decide to set up camp. And they move near to this big block of cheese. And in fact, they post signs like this, having cheese makes you happy. And they are so content because now nothing will ever again change. But as the parable rolls out, uh, of course, the cheese is moved. The workplace, the church, the school, the environment you live in, if you will, things change. The mice are adaptable, but hem and haw, the two little people, they're beside themselves. This is how uh, Johnson describes their reaction. Later that same day, Hem and Ha arrived at Cheese Station C. They had not been paying attention to the small changes that had been taking place each day, so they took it for granted that their cheese would be there. They were unprepared for what they found. What? No cheese, Hem yelled. He continued yelling, no cheese, no cheese, as though if he shouted loud enough, someone would put it back. Who moved my cheese? He hollered. Finally, he put his hands on his hips, his face turned red, and he screamed at the top of his voice, It's not fair. It's not fair. My church is changing. It's not fair. 
My school is changing. It's not fair. My family is changing. It's not fair. The place I work is changing. It's not fair. This country, the way it's changing, it's not fair. The world I live in, it's not fair. Abigail had every right, I would expect, to scream at the top of her lungs. Samuel's off the scene. Saul is weak. David is violent. Nabal's a fool. And she's a woman mistreated in her culture. Whoa, it's not fair. But this is not the response of this incredible woman. Oh no, she becomes the master of her circumstances. We've been learning lessons, haven't we, for over a century. Back in 1911, two groups, two nations, pursuing the honor of being the very first to reach the South Pole. Perhaps you remember the names of Raoul Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott. The story's quite different. You see, for Scott, there was inadequate preparation. He didn't take the situation as seriously as he might have. He eventually did get to the pole, but he was not first. And on the way back, he and his troop perished. In fact, we actually have a document of some of the letters that he wrote to his wife where he is cursing the inhospitable landscape. How horrible is the cold and the wind and the conditions. And this is how his life ends. On the other hand, we find the Norwegian uh, Amundsen, uh, interesting, the level of preparation. Way more supplies than he needs. He goes on a 2,000-mile bike ride to make sure that he has the physical endurance. He hangs out with Eskimos learning about dogs and sleds. He takes up skiing to make sure he can navigate the snow and the ice. And in one instance, he actually sits down to a meal of raw dolphin because he wants to know in advance if he can stomach eating raw dolphin. He doesn't want to find out when he's in the middle of Antarctica. Jim Collins, in his book, Great by Choice, says this, Amundsen's philosophy, you don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're on the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier and dog handler. You prepare with intensity all the time, so that when conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And the very first flag to be planted at the South Pole, the flag of Norway. Oh, the Norwegians, a reputation for planting flags where they need to be planted. Abigail. Do you get the impression hearing this story that this was not her first rodeo? Like she acted so quickly and so smartly, she had been preparing her whole life for inhospitable weather, for circumstances that were not ideal. I wonder if there's basically three approaches we might take to dealing with the circumstances we face in life. How about these three images to represent? First, I think some of us just, life overwhelms us and we faint. 
Yeah, we just, phew, I'm out of here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and, and make a plate of nachos and surf the web. I I'm, I'm, do not have the strength to deal with these situations. I think a second, second uh, option, uh, some people are activists, but they just, and forgive me for using this word, parents, but, and, and they just do things that are stupid, like this second image, I think is pretty stupid, testing that helmet out. I'm going to do something, but I'm not going to think about it very clearly. But then there's the third option, isn't there? And that's to stand up with intelligence against all odds. And this is our magnificent Abigail. In the face of no more Samuel, and a weak Saul, and a violent David, and a foolish husband Nabal, she deals with the game that she has been given, and she acts and she moves with intelligence to change her situation. In fact, this is precisely what the text says. Notice, Abigail acted quickly and with good judgment. She didn't faint, she acted, but she did so smart. The third choice. Interesting, isn't it, that she acted quickly. She was timely in her response. My wife and I, I think since our dating days, have had this saying, this phrase that we use. So if we're traveling somewhere and there's a car in front of us and they have their turn signal on, say their left turn signal, and a mile later the turn signal is still on. And 10 miles later, the turn signal is still on. Yeah, we have a phrase that we say. Uh, we call that, Nicole and I, the eventual left. The eventual left. They must have it on because eventually, at some point in the future, <laughs> I suppose they're going to turn. How many of us in our lives have the eventual left, the eventual right? Eventually, I'm going to change course. Eventually. Eventually, I'm going to have courage. Yeah, eventually, when I get to it, I'm going to be brave. Eventually. Eventually, I'm going to do the right thing when the political circumstances will keep people happy. Eventually, I will argue for justice and equality when it seems that enough people will not be disturbed. Eventually, I'll stick my neck out. Eventually, yeah, I'll get to it. And we discover that we go our whole lives caring more about politics and the opinions of people than doing the right thing in the moment. Eventually, the eventual left, the eventual right. This is not our magnificent Abby. Oh no. She acts in the moment. She turns that signal and then she turns the circumstances. I love, oh, I love the classic book, The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino. It's actually a tale about the Apostle Paul. He has a chapter called I Will Act Now. 
It's the 11th chapter in the book. Listen to what he has to say. My dreams are worthless. My plans are dust. My goals are impossible. All are of no value unless they are followed by action. I will act now. Never has there been a map, however carefully executed to detail and scale, which carried its owner over even one inch of ground. Never has there been a parchment of law, however fair, which prevented one crime. Never has there been a scroll, even such as the one I hold, which earned so much as a penny or produced a single word of acclamation. Action alone is the tinder which ignites the map, the parchment, this scroll, my dreams, my plans, my goals into a living force. I will act now. This is the magnificent Abigail. She makes a decision and she acts in the moment and changes her circumstances. So where, my friends, does she get the metal, the strength, the internal fortitude, the guts, to be able to act in such a powerful way against all odds. I think there's a hint. We read it in the text, but perhaps passed over it too quickly. There's a verse, a strange verse, perplexing, and this is what it says. Abigail fell at David's feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. What? Samuel is dead. The political situation's a mess. Saul is weak. David is violent. Nabal is a fool. And she says, I accept all blame in this matter? Are you kidding me? Could it be? that a personal humility, a recognition that as a sinner, somehow she has contributed to the world of woe that we all find ourselves in. Could it be that she is a woman of prayer who daily goes before her Father in heaven with confession? Taking responsibility, not passing it to someone else. Oh, it's that person's fault. It's that group over there. It's you, it's you. No, is it possible that her strength, that her guts comes from a personal humility which gives her the fortitude to act and to move? There's a theologian by the name of Jacobus Arminius, who was influential in the thinking of Wesley, 
who was influential in the thinking of Ellen White and therefore influential in Seventh-day Adventist theology. His claim to fame was that human beings have the ability to choose. That is, we can say yes and no to God, to life. We can act or not act. But I want you to notice, and uh, wade with me now through a, a little bit of theological language, to something that Arminius said that serves in support of this sort of action. Notice. But in his lapsed and sinful state, Man is not capable of any by himself, either to think, to will, or to do that which is really good. But it is necessary for him to be regenerated and renewed in his intellect, affections, or will, and in all his powers, by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, that he may be qualified to rightly understand, esteem, consider, will, and perform whatever is truly good. When he is made a partaker of this regeneration or renovation, I consider that since he is delivered from sin, he is capable of thinking, willing, and doing that which is good. And here it is. But yet not without the continued aids of divine grace. Arminius says, oh yeah, human beings can live with courage and bravery, but not on our own, but only when we humbly submit ourselves to God and this grace we acquire day after day after day. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, pray also for me. Pray for me that I might have courage. We teach our children to sing. Uh, do you know the song? It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother. Not my father. But it's me, O oh Lord. Not my brother, not my sister. But it's me, O oh Lord. Not the Democrats, not the Republicans, not the conservatives, not the liberals, not... It's me, O oh Lord. Standing in need of prayer. Could it be that the unimaginable strength of the magnificent Abigail against all odds comes from a deep humility, regularly confessing her life before her God? I think so. I think so. I mean, after all, who had the power? Who had the influence? The power structure of the Indian government? Or a nun named Teresa? A secretary named Rosa? Or the southern governors of Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Georgia? The white presidents of South Africa? Or an inmate named Mandela. All the testosterone in Israel combined or Abigail. Centuries of Caesars or a condemned and crucified Palestinian carpenter. All the one percenters for all of history or an impoverished Jesus. 
Who is it that actually changes the world? The big and the rich and the powerful? Or humble people that gain such unimaginable strength because of their private confession before God? Seven bears. That's where we started. There they are. But how about, for good measure, an eighth bear? I grew up, um, I grew up in western North Carolina. And in October of every year, in cashiers, just miles from where I lived, there emerged what is known as the cashier's bear. A bit of a miracle, isn't it? The shadow, the silhouette, painted there against the majesty of fall foliage. The cashier's bear beyond our imagination. Or might we call it Papa Bear? Or in the words of Jesus, Abba Bear. A father that we have in heaven that stands behind us and in front of us, beneath us and above us, our Papa Bear. Oh, is it possible? Is it possible? Oh, my fellow cubs, it is true. We have a great Papa Bear. And when we come to him, in all humility, he gives us the grace that we need for this and every day. And through that transaction, we become more powerful and brave and courageous, people filled up with guts like we never imagined. Praise be to our Papa Bear today.